All right, let us worship our God through giving our full attention to God's Word in Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Thank you, Jesse and the team, for leading us in worship. Psalm 27. We'll read the entire psalm as we begin. Listen now to the reading of God's word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Let me begin by asking you a question. What difference does it make? What a question that is. What difference does it make? There's a depth to that question rooted in the fact that it's seeking for something. That question has a specific desire behind it. When we ask what difference does it make, we are trying to get down to the practical. What difference does it make is a question in search of application on a quest for practical ramifications. We can rephrase that question and put it like this. If then, if this, then what? If such and such is true, then what are the practical results? Why does it matter? If I had to boil 
Psalm 27 down to its essence, I would think of that one question. What difference does it make? What difference does what make, you may ask? What difference does the Lord make? If God, then what? Or to be more specific, if God is for us, if God is for us, then what? In Psalm 27, David is wrestling with that question. Now, we don't know much about the historical background behind this psalm. Suggestions abound, but there doesn't seem to be a consensus as to what was happening in David's life when he wrote Psalm 27. But this we know. David is asking himself in Psalm 27. He's asking his own soul. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you had a conversation with your own soul? You should do it often. And David was asking his own soul, David, what difference does knowing God's favor make? God is for you, David. Then what? And that's the good news. Even though historical considerations are important, they are not definitive. What's more important here is that these words can and should be appropriated by all Christians in all ages, at all times, and under all circumstances. The truth of Psalm 27 transcends all history, time, and place. As a matter of fact, let me just encourage you to ask yourself that question often, daily. If God is for me, then what? If God is for me, then what? What difference does it make in my life to know that God, creator of heaven and earth, maker of all things, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, is for me and not against me? What difference does it make? If God is for me, then what? So let us join David in this glorious quest and let's see how he answers his own question. And we begin here. If God is for us, then we have nothing to fear. If God is for us, then we have nothing to fear. Let us read once again verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The place to begin is the one we are prone to visit very, very often. Fear. Fear. And the leading consequence of knowing God's favor is that we can overcome our fears. In the case of David, he had actual enemies, human enemies, whom he calls evildoers, armies, adversaries, and foes. But by way of application, I take this to mean anything that sought to destroy not only David's life, but David's faith. David's faith. Any challenge, any obstacle, any sorrow, any affliction. Why do I think that? 
Because that's the point of speaking of the Lord as light, salvation, and a stronghold or a refuge. The point of David's enemies, their objective was to make him doubt, question, second guess his Lord. David, who is in charge? David, in whose hands are you? David, why did that happen in your life? David, how come your own son is against you and wants to kill you? David, how come you fell so low into adultery and murder? David, why don't you just give up? David, are you sure you want to keep serving a God who allows suffering and disappointment in your life? In short, David, is God really for you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Is God really for me? Of course you have because this is a universal experience. Life for David might have looked different in terms of culture, dress, and language, but the experience of hardships, afflictions, and sufferings that lead to fear are the same as ours. And what are our enemies? The same as David's. Anything that is seeking to destroy, minimize, downplay, or undermine our faith in the Lord. In short, our enemies are distractions. Distractions. Some of these are truly painful and run deep. David knew this. He knew the danger of distractions. The battle always is, to whom will I look? My afflictions, my sorrows, my enemies, or the Lord? You see, God cannot be moved. God cannot be moved. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, the only way for our faith to be weakened is by distractions that lead us away from looking at him, our shelter, our refuge, and our strength. If you are fearful this morning, if you feel exposed this morning, and if you are walking in weakness, then that's because you have lost sight of your refuge, of the Lord. You're not looking in the right direction. Enemies are distractions. I will come back to that word in a little bit. In Psalm 27, David is asking the right question. Our problem is that many times we ask the wrong questions. Take, for instance, uh, tornadoes. How many of you love tornadoes? Tornado. Some of you might feel like you are in one right now. When you are in a tornado, you don't ask yourself, can my body take a direct hit? That would not only be the wrong question, but a silly one. No human body can endure the force of a tornado. What do you do during a tornado? First of all, you don't go outside challenging the tornado, saying, hit me with your best shot. If you did that, I would question your sanity. That would be foolish. What do you do when you encounter a tornado? Well, you recognize that you can't stand against it on your own. You recognize that you're weak. 
that recognition will do something, right? It will make you go seeking for real shelter for something stronger than you. The proper question during a tornado is, not can I take a direct hit, but can my shelter protect me? That's a different question, isn't it? Your confidence is proportional to the strength of the shelter, not yourself. Hence David's words in verse 3. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. David was asking the right question. In the midst of trials and afflictions, he was thinking about his shelter, his stronghold, not his own strength. And the stronger the shelter, the lesser the fear. Now, as you know, let's keep talking about tornadoes since we are in Texas. There are different tornado shelters out there. They say that you can start with the innermost room of the house. Not ideal, but it is something. Better, far better than that is to have an above-ground, heavy-duty, thick metal, well-built shelter somewhere in the garage. That's better. However, I remember watching a video of how a weatherman warned people in the path of the tornado that hit Joplin, Missouri, in 2011. It was an EF5 tornado, the uh, strongest kind that killed 158 people and injured more than 1,100 others. At one point, he said some of the most sobering words I've ever heard from a weatherman. He said, if you are in the path of this tornado, you need to be underground. You need to be underground. In other words, an above-ground shelter won't protect you. This tornado is just too violent. You need to be hidden underground. Now, by far, the, the greatest, the best shelter is the one that places you completely out of harm's reach. If you are hidden underground, the speeds of the wind or the amount of debris won't make a difference. David, he knew his shelter. It was the Lord. Therefore, he could say, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? My enemies stumble and fall. I will be confident. You know what David sounds like? David sounds like a Christian. David sounds like a man who knew himself to be hidden from all harm in the hands of the Lord. So what is the application for us? Here's the application for us from verses 1, 2, and 3. Remember that you are hidden. Remember that you are hidden. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, for you have died, and your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. Remember, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christian, don't lose, lose sight of where you are. Your position in Christ is that you are hidden you are hidden with Christ in God. God has hidden us in himself. Can you think of a safer place to be? Thomas Watson said, quote, Trust the Lord with your soul, 
for you cannot put this jewel in safer hands. Trust the Lord with your soul, for you cannot put this jewel in safer hands, end quote. Think about what Paul does in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He says, he asks this question, if God is for us, then who can be what? Against us, which is a rhetorical question. The answer is embedded in it. And by, to answer the question, he brings us back to Christ, both crucified and risen. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Why did Paul answer his own question by pointing us to Christ? Here's why. Nothing. Absolutely nothing in this world. Nothing in this world can show you that God is for you in greater, better, stronger, or louder measure than the cross and the empty tomb. Nothing. In fact, look at this table set before us this morning. Look at the table set before us this morning in just a few moments we will remember Christ's body torn for us and his blood shed for us. Is there any doubt in your mind, Christian believer, that God is for you? When you look at this table, is there any doubt in your mind? When you remember the death of Jesus, is there any doubt in your mind, Christian, that God is indeed for you? How dare we deny it? Look at the cross and let us deny it no more. Some of you may say, but, but my circumstances, they are bad, they are painful, they are unbearable. If that's you, then do what David did. Recognize your weakness in the face of your afflictions, in the face of your pain. And then come running to your light, to your salvation, to your stronghold, the Lord Jesus. Some people say that Christianity is for weak people. I say amen. Amen. You see, David was like Paul. In his weakness, he was what? Strong. Because his weakness led him to the strong one. Knowing God's favor, knowing that God was for him was enough for David. Likewise to Paul, Jesus said, my grace is what? Sufficient for you, to which you might say, well, Lord, show me your grace. Here it is. The table is set. The table is set. Christian, God is for you. Look at the table. The Lord's table. You are hidden in the one who died, rose again, and ascended on high. Nothing can touch you. Your joy is secure, your salvation is secure, your life is secure. You are hidden with Christ in God. Remember this, remember this. By necessity now, this leads us to our next consideration. If God is for us next, then we are free to pursue the good portion. Then we are free to pursue the good portion. Consider verse 4 with me. 
One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's hiddenness. His security in the everlasting arms freed him to pursue how many things? One thing. One thing. The cares and the worries of this world did not drown his greatest ambition, namely God. David asked one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord permanently in order to gaze upon the beauty of of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. You know what that is? That is the chief end of man. That is the chief end of man. David wanted his eyes away from looking at himself and always looking unto God. He wanted undistracted, there's the word again, undistracted attention upon God, not upon himself or his troubles. Now the idea of wanting one thing is not unique to David, of course. Now it's a good time to talk about distractions a little more. The Bible tells us that one day the Lord Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him in her house. She had a sister named Mary. But in chapter 10 of his gospel, Luke tells us that Martha had a problem. The Lord was right in front of her but she could not see him. The Lord was right in front of her, but she could not see him. She was distracted. Have I mentioned that word? She was distracted, the Bible says, with much serving. But serving for Martha became a hindrance, for it took the place of gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. She had him right in front of her, but she could not see him. Martha's sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, you know what happened, right? Seeing this, Martha complained and said to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? To which Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many Many, many, many things. Your mind is going in two, way too many directions, Martha. And then the Lord Jesus says, but one thing is necessary. One thing. Mary, your sister, has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Likewise, the Apostle Paul said this, he said, but one thing, not many, but one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the application for us? Here's the application. Be single-minded in purpose. Be single-minded in purpose. One thing. What is the chief end of man? You know the answer. What is the chief end of man? To know God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. Let us learn from David 
Let us learn from Mary. Let us learn from Paul. And let us not complicate our Christianity. Only one thing is necessary. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Pursue Christ above all things. I think generally speaking, we know what to abide or dwell means. For we all have dwelled on that which is bad. In fact, we have a tendency to do that. To dwell on bad things. Things that eat at your stomach. That keep you awake at night. Things that have your undivided attention. If you can say, yes, I've done that, then you know what it means to abide, to dwell. But David, Mary, and Paul are inviting us to one thing. David said, to dwell in the house of the Lord, which we can do in the Spirit, for we are now the temple of God. Mary said, choose the good portion, which we can do by listening to the Lord speak to us in his written word. And Paul said, press on toward the goal, which we can do by setting our minds on things above where Christ is. The invitation is this. Do not allow the concerns and the troubles of this world to distract you from the one thing you need, the chief end of man. You are hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, you are free to be single-minded in purpose. Don't dwell on the bad. Instead, think on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Put your mind to good use. Then you will not be anxious, the Bible says. You cannot speak to your circumstances and simply tell them to go away. But you can speak to your own soul. And tell it to rest and to focus on the good portion. And if you have forgotten what that is, then you came the right time because here's the table set for us. God is for you. Stay the course. Press on. Only one thing is necessary. We see next, if God is for us, then we have reason to sing. Verses 5 and 6 for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. There is a lot of confidence in David. Who can say my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me? Well, those who are subjects of a victorious king can say that. And who was David? He was one under the lordship of a victorious king. We see this in that mysterious conversation between the Lord and David's Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1. You know this verse. David was given a window into an intra-Trinitarian conversation. And this is what David heard. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David's son was also David's Lord. And to the Lord, to that Lord, the father said, your enemies will lick the dust. But there's something extra beautiful about Psalm 110. 
You know that someone said it is God's favorite psalm. Why would someone say that? Well, because it is the most frequently quoted psalm by the writers of the New Testament. And they unashamedly apply it to Christ Jesus. He is the one whose enemies will serve as as his footstool. And guess what? Through faith, through faith, we are one with him. Therefore, we get to share in his victory, a victory that is secured in heaven forever, undefiled, perfect, indestructible. Therefore, here's the application. Here's the application. Do not neglect worship. Do not neglect worship. Notice where this confidence leads David in verse 6. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Worship, you know what worship is? Worship is faith singing. Worship is faith singing. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, we are called to sing and make melody in our hearts to God. Why? Out of gratitude for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. God in Christ has conquered death and sin and hell. There is now no condemnation. You have been raised together with Christ. Therefore, sing. Therefore, make melody to the Lord in your heart. And please don't miss that. David's melody to the Lord is rooted not in his circumstances, not in his enemies, but is rooted in the security that he has the favor of the Lord, that God is for him. And nothing could take that away from him. Consequently, he makes melody to the Lord. He sings, he worships. And so the invitation is this. Come and worship, not because you feel like it, but because you know that God is for you in Christ Jesus. And nothing, no one can take that away from you, nothing. You worship not because you feel, but because you know this is faith. Worship is faith singing praises. To God. David was often surrounded by evil, yet he believed, therefore he worshiped. Now, following the same train of thought, here's the next fact of the Christian life. If God is for us, then we can draw near with confidence. If God is for us, then we can draw near with confidence. Verses 7 through 10 Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Let me ask you this. Why the language of God's face? Why God's face? Well, as I was studying this, this reminded me of the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. When God instructed Aaron to bless the people of Israel, he told him to say these words, The Lord bless you and keep you. And then he said this, The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Why the face? Well, you know, you know the importance of face. 
from a human standpoint, facial expression says much regarding heart disposition. If, if, if someone doesn't like you, they're going to know it by their face. With the face, someone can love you. With their face, someone can welcome you. With the face, someone can shun you and shame you. With the face, someone can show interest or indifference in you. Facial expressions reveal heart dispositions. They are important to our relationships. Much can be revealed about someone by their face. But when applied to God, this is what we call an anthropomorphism. That is, we attribute human-like characteristics to God, who is a spirit. So just like God's arm is not a reference to a literal arm, but to his power to save, God's face is not a reference to a literal face, but to his pleasure or displeasure. And look at God's invitation to David. Is that David, he says, David, seek my face. You know how glorious that is. For God to invite you to seek his face. Why? Because God is telling David, David, seek my face because I am well pleased. This is the goodness of the Lord. Seek my face, says the Lord, because my countenance is lifted up toward you. My face is shining upon you in pure, unending, unsurpassed pleasure. Well, good for David, David, right? But what about us? I know it is hard to believe, but we have even more confidence than David to seek the face of God. What David could only see from afar, we know from up close. You see, David never heard these words from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. God predestined us for what? For adoption, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Adoption, adoption, what is that? That's a gospel indicative. That's a gospel indicative. That's a heavenly fact. Has someone abandoned you? A well-trusted friend, a husband, a wife, a child, a parent. God never will, Christian. God never will. We can draw near and see God's face because, get this, get this, in Christ, God is well pleased with you. In Christ, God is well pleased with you. Better news I could not give you. What's the application? Well, persist in prayer. As the song says, God's love is not reluctant to receive me. My soul draws back, but love says, come. He will not cast you out. He will not cast you out. Whoever enters in will forever dwell with him. Draw near, faint heart, draw near. Love still bids you welcome here. Be like the persistent widow or like Jacob who wrestled with God. 
His countenance is forever favorable toward you because of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you ever feel abandoned, it's not because you are. It's simply because you stopped coming back to him. Persistent prayer. Next, we see this. If God is for us, then we can learn to walk in his ways. Verses 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Quickly notice two expressions that mean the same. Teach me your way and lead me on a level path. Keep me straight. Don't let me deviate from the truth. Why? What's the reason? Because of my enemies. Interesting. I believe the point of this petition from David is this. Keep me from falling into the ways of wicked men, Lord, thus bringing reproach on your holy name and your holy truth. Don't let me do that. Don't let me follow in the footsteps of wicked people so that I bring reproach upon your name. Don't let me play their game as if I am in their team. Don't let me act as if I didn't know you and your word. Don't let me do that, Lord. When Stephen stood before his accusers in Jerusalem and false witnesses were raised against him in Acts chapter 7, he was kept on a level path. I don't know if Stephen thought of David's prayer in Psalm 27, but I like to think that maybe he did. Even as his enemies threw rocks at him, and even as Saul was breathing out violence, Stephen was not given up to the will of his adversaries. They never found a reason to accuse him. He was kept in a level path, in the path of righteousness. What is the application? Let us walk in integrity, my brothers and sisters. Let us walk in integrity. Let us live in such a way that even if or when persecuted, mocked, or slandered, we heap burning coals on their heads. Romans 12, 20. May the world, may the world never have anything to say against us except that we love one another. And that we walk in the truth. And then finally, if God is for us, then we are more than conquerors. If God is for us, then we are more than conquerors. Verses 13 and 14. I believe, said David, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Where? In the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Both Matthew Henry and Charles Spurgeon believed that the reference to the land of the living here is more about the eternal state rather than this current life. It's hard to disagree with Matthew Henry and Charles Spurgeon, so I agree with them. I believe they are correct because if you, if you think about it, this is the land of the dying. This is the land of the dying. The real land of the living is yet to come when the Lord establishes the new heavens and the new earth. So David's hope was resurrection site, the beatific 
vision. So here's the application, and with this we'll finish. Here's the application from verses 13 and 14. Meditate on the world to come. Meditate on the world to come. According to church historian Robert Godfrey, this is a forgotten practice. One that John Calvin recommended very often. One of the best ways to deal with the assaults, the persecutions, and the afflictions that we experience in this world is to spend significant amount of time meditating on the world to come. And I cannot agree more. As we seek to live faithfully in this sin-stricken world, Christians cannot afford to lose sight of the world to come in which righteousness dwells. One day, brothers and sisters, remember this. One day, with our very eyes, in our very bodies, risen and glorified, we shall behold him face to face in all of his glory. And our vision of his goodness will not be blurred by the evil of the wicked, for in that land only righteousness will dwell. One day faith will no longer be needed, for with our very eyes we will see the Lord in his beauty. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. If God is for us, then we can be sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us wait for the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this Psalm 27. Thank you for the meditations, inspired meditations of King David. And help us to have this confidence for, for we live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. We have the full witness of your word that you are indeed for us and not against us. And so prepare our hearts this morning as we come to the Lord's table to remember this very truth that you are for us as shown beyond a shadow of doubt through the death of the Lord Jesus, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us and the empty tomb. And upon this reality of the gospel, we stand secure, firm, and confident. Let us not waver. And keep our eyes by your spirit, keep our eyes on the truth and on the Lord who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And these things we pray in his name. Amen.